Cain and Abel, Romulus and Remus, Adidas and Puma, the rivalry between two of the world's most recognizable brands went far beyond mere corporate competition. It was a vicious family feud that not only pitted two brothers against one another, but also divided the inhabitants of their hometown into warring factions. And it lasted 60 years, as Omar Akhtar writes in his article in Fortune magazine. In the 1920s, the brothers were partners in the Dossler Brothers Sports Shoe Company, operated out of their mother's laundry room in the small German town of Herzogenarek. Adolf Dossler, nicknamed Adi, was the quiet, thoughtful craftsman who designed and made the shoes, complemented by the older Rudolf Dossler, nicknamed Rudy, who was the extroverted salesman. Although the brothers joined the Nazi party when Hitler seized power in 1933, it didn't stop them from getting legendary African-American track star Jesse Owens to wear their shoes as he competed and won four gold medals at the 1936 Berlin Olympics. Owens' victory gave the shoes international exposure and the sales of the Dossler's product exploded. But the success created new tensions in the brothers' relationship, already strained by the fact that their families lived in the same villa despite their wives not getting along. There were several incidents that were said to have precipitated their conflict, but the most widely accepted one took place in World War II when the Allies were bombing Herzegonaric as Adi and his wife climbed into a bomb shelter already occupied by Rudy and his wife, he exclaimed, that dirty cuss word, are back again, referring to the Allied forces. But Rudy was convinced the remark was directed at him and his family. A feud, one of the most epic and, well, biblical in business history, was born. Not surprisingly, Adidas and Puma are number 20 on Fortune's list of the 50 greatest business rivalries of all time. When Rudy got called up for service, he suspected Adi and his wife had schemed to get him sent to the war front so that they could have him out of the way at work. Later, Rudy was arrested first for deserting his post and then by the Allies on suspicion of working for the Gestapo. On both occasions, Rudy was convinced that Adi was the one that ratted him out. His suspicions confirmed by a report filed by an American investigating officer. While Rudy languished in a prisoner of war camp, Adi rebuilt the business selling shoes to American GIs. The conflict escalated as the brothers split the company in two in 1948, dividing the assets and the employees between themselves. Adi named the company Adidas, a combination of his first and last names. Rudy attempted the same by first naming his company Ruda, but eventually changed it to the more athletic-sounding Puma. The two built competing factories on opposite sides of the River Arak, and quickly became responsible for much of the city's economy, with nearly everyone working for one company or the other. As the entire town got caught up in the Dostler family feud, the rivalry reached ridiculous proportions. There were local businesses that served only Adidas or only Puma people. Dating or marrying across company lines was forbidden. 
and Herzogenaurich became known as the town of Bent Necks. Since people first looked down at which company's shoes you were wearing before deciding to talk to you or not. It wasn't until 2009 when employees of both companies symbolized the end of six decades of feuding by playing a friendly soccer match. By then, the Dossler brothers had both died within four years of each other. Even in death, the animosity continued as the brothers were buried at opposite sides of the same cemetery as far away from each other as possible. Rivalry is an issue of the heart that when left unchecked will lead to catastrophic consequences. As a parent, if you have more than one child or if you have other siblings, usually of the same gender, or you work with talented colleagues or have classmates who are smart, you will most likely have seen or experienced rivalry. I remember when my boys were toddler-aged, they would compete to get the attention of us parents. When Andrew wanted to sit on my lap and he climbed up, Nathan would instinctively do the same thing. Or when one is playing with a toy or reading a book, that just happened to be the exact toy or book that the other boy wanted at that time. Now, a bit of rivalry, especially in the world of sports, is all good and fun until it becomes an issue of the heart and then it becomes sinister and something we need to be careful of. As we continue our mini-series in the short book of Obadiah, we remember that we are looking at three issues of the heart identified in this book. These heart issue sins are not obvious to other people because one cannot see into other people's hearts. But unfortunately, they form the root or the basis of many of our outward sins and godless ways. So it's important to identify these heart issues and to deal with them. Now, by way of reminder, the book of Obadiah deals specifically with God's judgment against the Edomites, descendants of Esau, who because of three issues of their heart, treated their relatives, the Israelites, very badly. And so God used the prophet Obadiah to deliver God's message of divine judgment to Edom. The first heart sin is pride, which we talked about last week. And the second one we will talk about is rivalry. Now listen carefully. Rivalry is not the sin of covetousness or the sin of envy, which wants what belongs to others. But rivalry has the idea or attitude that says, I am better than you. I deserve to be better than you. I will always be better than you, and I will do anything to ensure that I am better than you. That forms the heart of rivalry. This is a very destructive heart issue, and it is a sin that must be identified in our hearts and quickly dealt with. So let's see what the Bible says. Turn with me, if you would, to the book of Obadiah in the minor prophet section of the Bible as we study Obadiah verse 10 to 14. Obadiah verse 10 to 14. Let me read Obadiah verse 10. For violence against your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you, and you shall be cut off forever. This prophetic book tells us very clearly that Edom's second sin against God is because of Edom's rivalry against the Israelites that manifests itself as violence against their relatives. 
Notice the word here in verse 10, violence, followed by the word brother. These two words, violence and brother, has the implication that the natural relationship between brothers or among siblings is supposed to be one of brotherly love, a natural close relationship because of blood relation. However, in this case, there was violence on the part of Edom, the descendants of Esau, against the Israelites, the descendants of Jacob. Now, if you think you and your family don't get along, look at the relationship between Jacob and Esau. For a detailed look in their rivalry, I encourage you to watch or listen to the 13-week sermon series entitled Home, if you have not already done so. And you can find that on our church's website, on our church's YouTube channel. The story of Jacob and Esau plays out like a soap opera. The conflict between these two boys and their respective descendants began before they were born. The Bible tells us in Genesis chapter 25, verse 22, the infants struggled in the womb of their mother, Rebekah. They were twins. Years later, when Esau was hungry, he readily traded his birthright to Jacob for some red stew. And for this reason, the Bible tells us Esau is also called Edom. Genesis chapter 25, verse 30 tells us, which means red. Jacob, on the other hand, in Genesis chapter 27, masquerades himself as Esau to receive the blessing of the firstborn from their father Isaac. And so Esau tried to kill Jacob, which forced Jacob to run away from home for decades. Although they made up much later in life, their descendants were not in the best of relationships. When Moses led the people of Israel out of Egypt, the kingdom of Edom refused to let the Israelites pass through their lands when Israel was on their way to the promised land. And you can read more about this in Numbers chapter 20, verses 14 to 21. But God told the Israelites not to hate the Edomites since they were related, Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 7. However, hostility continued to develop, and it continued for centuries, so much so that Ezekiel chapter 35, verse 5, noted the ancient hatred of the Edomites against the Israelites. The kings of Israel, Saul, David, Solomon, and others, all had problems with the sons of Edom. In 586 B.C., Edom encouraged Babylon to destroy Jerusalem. Psalm 137, verse 7, tells us. Also, the Bible says in Malachi chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, that God loved Jacob, but he hated Esau. Now, the terms love and hate reflect God's elective purpose for both sons. When God said he loved Jacob, but hated Esau, he meant that he chose to bless Jacob in a way that he did not choose to bless Esau. It wasn't that God didn't love the people of Edom, because the Bible is very clear, God loves all people. The line of Jacob finally produced Jesus Christ. The line of Esau produced the Herods. Both Jesus and the Herods were noted as the king of the Jews. And the Gospels in the New Testament shows that they were at odds with differing agendas. As you can see, Edom had centuries of rivalry against the Israelites, whom God, by His grace, decided to bless. Now, God didn't cause this ancient rivalry between the two peoples. 
It was Edom's failure to accept the realities of God's blessings upon the Israelites. So like today in our definition of rivalry, the Edomites thought this with regards to their relatives, the Israelites. We are better than you. We deserve to be better than you. We will always be better than you. And we will do anything to ensure that we will be better than you. And so rivalry ensued. And because Edom could not be happy for Israel, that the rivalry of their heart caused them to war against the people of God. And so, rightly, God would enact His divine judgment upon Edom, which He did. And that is why there is little left culturally of the Edomites. As we will see in verses 11 to 14, this heart issue of rivalry developed into three very outward wrongs which were the basis of God's condemnation against the Edomites. And it should serve as a warning to us against harboring an attitude of rivalry in our own hearts so that we don't experience the same tragic consequence. Look with me now at verse 11. In the day that you stood on the other side, in the day that strangers carried captive his forces, when foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, even you were as one of them. The Bible tells us the judgment against Edom in the historical context was that when the foreign invaders came and they invaded Jerusalem, the Edomites did not stand with those who should have been their natural allies, the Israelites, their relatives. But instead, the Bible says, they stood against them. That's what verse 11 says. You stood on the other side. They took the wrong side, the side against God and His people. In fact, when the enemies came and plundered Jerusalem, Edom was there standing on the wrong side. And that is the first consequence of cultivating rivalry in your heart. Rivalry consequence number one. Rivalry results in taking the wrong side. Rivalry results in taking the wrong side. Because rivalry says in the heart, I will do everything I can to be better than you. Then that means we cannot be on the same side. It is an attitude and a hard conclusion that says, I will take an opposite side against you, whatever the issue, just because we can't be together. How many of you dislike someone just because your good friend or close colleague dislikes that person? That person may be the kindest person who has done nothing wrong to you, but because of your friend's rivalry with the other person, you join the rivalry and dislike the person as well. Rivalry causes us oftentimes to take the wrong side, even though we know what is right. And that is true in human nature. We often take a contrary position, not because it is right or wrong, but because of the people who take what side? Historically, in the Crusades in the Middle Ages, King Richard of England and King Philip of France went to battle together as comrades. When both men came under enemy attack in the Holy Lands, it was evident that Richard was the braver of the two. And so the Crusaders nicknamed him Richard the Lionhearted. When it became obvious that the Crusaders regarded Richard as their chief and better leader. Philip grew envious. 
moved by jealousy and rivalry, he would object to Richard's strategies, even though they were right. He finally became defiant, withdrew from the Holy Lands, him and his army, in a huff, and hastened back to France, which was a contributing factor that led to Richard's defeat in the Crusades. Later, Philip treacherously invaded Richard's territory. What a tragedy, all because of the heart issue of rivalry. For us as Christians, we need to remember that as it relates to other Christians, we are on the same team. We are not to harbor rivalries. We are to rejoice when others do well. We are to grieve when others are hurting. Romans chapter 12, verses 15 to 16a says this. Romans chapter 12, verses 15 to 16a has the same admonition. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. We should not let rivalry put us on the wrong side of things. If there are churches who faithfully teach God's Word and are grounded in the right theology, and they happen to be growing faster than we are and have more people in their congregation because they are fulfilling the work of the Great Commission, I and we all should say, praise the Lord. Instead of having rivalry in our hearts, wondering why we are not growing as fast, and begin to knock them down on petty issues. Perhaps we should look at ourselves to see areas where we can learn from them. Perhaps they're doing something right as they are effectively doing the work of the Great Commission. But that being said, if cult groups like the Mormons, the Jehovah's Witness, or Iglesia Ni Cristo are growing faster, I do not rejoice because they are on the wrong side with heretical doctrines. As the Bible teaches, it is fair game to rebuke and to bring to light the truth against cults or churches and individuals that advocate or teach wrong doctrines and stray from the Bible. I like this story told of F.B. Myers. When the famous pastor F.B. Myers was pastoring Christ Church in London, the more famous Charles Spurgeon was preaching at Metropolitan Tabernacle. And the equally more famous G. Campbell Morgan was at Westminster Chapel, two thriving and flourishing churches right next to F.B. Myers' own church. But instead of having a rivalry or being envious, Myers said, I find in my own ministry that supposing I pray for my own little flock, God bless me, God fill my pews to be as big as the others, God send me a revival, I miss the blessing. But as I pray for my big brother, Mr. Spurgeon, on the right-hand side of my church, God bless him. Or my other big brother, G. Campbell Morgan, on the other side of my church, God bless him. I am sure to get a blessing without even perhaps praying for it, for the overflow of their cups fill my little bucket. Isn't that great? The overflow of their cups fill my little bucket. What an attitude for F.B. Meyer that is devoid of rivalry. As God blesses others, I am blessed as well. Do you think you can have this same attitude? Especially for Christians who are achieving great things in life as they serve as a witness and a testimony to the world for the Lord Jesus Christ. As they flourish, as they thrive, they now have a new platform to be a testimony for Jesus. 
We should praise the Lord when this happens so that Christ's followers are able to make an impact in this dark world for Jesus. Look with me now at verse 12 of Obadiah. But you should not have gazed on the day of your brother in the day of his captivity, nor should you have rejoiced over the children of Judah in the day of their destruction, nor should you have spoken proudly in the day of distress. Here in verse 12, it is clear that the prophet Obadiah was pointing out that wrong attitudes, even more than physical violence, were Edom's sin against the Israelites on the occasion of Jerusalem's invasion. Edom, because of a rivalrous and indifferent attitude, stood aloof while her relatives were suffering, no different from strangers who are indifferent to the sufferings of people they don't know. But they knew the Israelites. And then in the downward spiral noted in verse 12, that indifference caused by a rivalry was followed by a gloating, a looking down, the Bible says, over the misfortune of her brothers. The rejoicing over Judah's destruction and even the boasting of her troubles. Here, boasting is literally make your mouth large, talking big, another expression of rivalry and arrogance. This verse shows the second consequence of cultivating rivalry in your heart. Rivalry consequence number two, rivalry results in wrong attitudes. Rivalry results in wrong attitudes. The rivalry against Israel led to an attitude of boasting and arrogance. They rejoiced in Israel's troubles. And of course, the danger is that wrong attitudes lead to wrong actions. Wrong attitudes lead to wrong actions. Do you know why consecutive months, July and August, both have 31 days, although they really should alternate in 30 and 31 days? Well, July, the seventh month, was named after the Roman emperor, Julius Caesar. But not to be outdone, the emperor Augustus called the following month August, after himself. And of course, we follow the Roman calendar. As tradition tells us, since that month, August, had only 30 days at that time, he borrowed a day from February and added it to August, making sure that his month would not be inferior to Julius Caesar's July, which had 31 days. And that's why today, their rivalrous attitude caused many to mix up how many days are in February, July, and August? An attitude of rivalry will not allow someone else to get ahead of us. Again, do we rejoice with others when they succeed in life as we are called to do in Romans chapter 12, verse 14, to rejoice with those who rejoice? Or do we inwardly feel that life is not fair, that I am better than them, I should be more deserving or of this and that award or of this and that in life? Do we curse the people of God whom God chooses to bless? Do we have an attitude of bitterness and anger against God that He chooses to bless others and not you in the way that you want? If you have this heart attitude, then you have committed the same sin as that of the Edomites. Do we cheer for people who succeed or try to take them down those who try to pull ahead? If you ever look at crabs in the wet market with claws opened, their buckets are usually also opened without a top. 
Why? Why aren't the owners afraid that the crabs will escape? Because if you observe them enough, you will see that when one crab tries to climb higher to get out of the bucket or the container, one of the other crabs in the bucket or the barrel pulls them down. The crabs try to escape from the bucket, but because they grab and pull down each other, they always fail individually and collectively. Crab mentality is a term that describes a way of thinking of a person who always tries to pull down other people, not wanting them to succeed while he or she is being left behind. It is a metaphor that refers to the crabs in a bucket. Crab mentality is an attitude that clings to the phrase, if I can't have it, neither can you. If I can't have it, neither can you. Here are at least four ways that can help you overcome this crab mentality attitude, which has as its core and root the attitude of rivalry. And hopefully these four ways that I'm going to suggest can help you overcome the resulting destructive consequences that take place in your life when you harbor the attitude of rivalry. First, humbly admit that this is a problem for you, that your jealousy insecurities and selfishness as sinners have driven you to think like this and even act upon the attitude of rivalry. Ask God for forgiveness. Second, acknowledge and recognize that in life there are people who are simply better than you in certain areas of life or skills. It is not that they have more worth than you as a human being. It is simply that they are more skilled and talented in a particular area of life. Remember, as Christians, there's nothing you and I can do and there's nothing you and I can achieve that will make God love you more or love you less. Your immense worth to God as His children remain the same and it is unconditional. My friends, if you ever doubt this, if you ever doubt your self-worth, look no further than what God did for you when He sent His Son, Jesus Christ, God Himself, to die for you in your place so that you and I can have eternal life. Third, put yourself in the shoes of the one you are rivalrous of and appreciate what it took for them to achieve what they have achieved with God's help. Think about how long and how many hours it takes to write a book or how many hours or days or months it takes to paint or draw a masterpiece or how long it takes to earn an academic degree and even to do so with honors, or how much time and effort or even risk is involved to start a business, or how much time it takes to practice in order to play a musical instrument well. If all you are doing is watching Netflix and binging on K-drama and C-drama all day, and then rivalrous of what others have achieved, I don't think you have much of a right to have the attitude that you have. Maybe that will call for you to examine your own life to see if you're willing to put in the same hard work, time, and effort to achieve what others have achieved with God's help. Two Proverbs come to mind that speak on this point. Proverbs chapter 13, verse 4. The soul of a lazy man desires and has nothing, but the soul of the diligent shall be made rich. I like that. The soul of a lazy man desires and has nothing, but the soul of the diligent shall be made rich. 
And then one chapter over in Proverbs chapter 14, verse 23. In all labor there is profit, but idle chatter leads only to poverty. In all labor there is profit, but idle chatter leads only to poverty. Fourth, instead of the so-called crab mentality attitude, be glad someone is doing what they are doing. In fact, it could be for your own benefit that they are able to achieve what they achieve. Think how you and I benefit from the hard work of a medical researcher or the medical research team that puts in time and effort to discover and invent a new medicine. Remember the teachers who taught with skill so that you can understand a tough concept upon which you can build upon that you can now flourish today. Think about how the innovations of the men and women in technology have bettered your quality of life today. Think about the many missionaries, pastors, and Christian workers who sacrifice so much so that the gospel of Jesus Christ and the truth of Scripture can be brought to you and to the people of the world. Instead of crabs, perhaps we can look at the ants of the same colony. See how they help each other out. If you ever observe ants, you don't see one having a bad attitude that somehow they're not at the top of the line or leading the line or somehow an ant is rivalrous of a fellow ant in the same colony. You know, recently I saw about 50 ants working together to carry a small little stone straight up 90 degrees up a metal frame. They all supported one another, and when one got tired, at least it seemed to me, they were replaced by another ant. Working together, they were able to bring that little small stone about two meters up the 90-degree incline of that metal frame. And then a gust of wind took the stone down. I thought, well, that's it. All that work for nothing. I bet you these ants are going to give up. But then five minutes later, they all gathered at the bottom where the stone had fallen, and they tried again to bring up this little stone to wherever they were bringing it to. I was thinking, if I was one of those ants, and that wind blew that little stone back to the ground, after all the effort and work, I would blame everyone else for why we have to do it again. I would blame one ant to say, could you not have held it tighter? Or, you're too weak. You should have moved out and let someone stronger. And I'm sure there would have been a thousand reasons I could have used to blame the other ants. But when I saw them all working together again, I was reminded that the attitude of rivalry is missing in ants. And so they are able to achieve great things. But more than that, they kept on trying to achieve great things because if they first fail, they don't blame each other. Everyone has the same mindset. Let's do it again. What a lesson to us as Christians in the church. Christians working together to influence the world for Jesus Christ. Look with me at verses 13 and 14 of Obadiah. You should not have entered the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. Indeed, you should not have gazed on their affliction in the day of their calamity, nor laid hands on their substance in the day of their calamity. You should not have stood at the crossroads to cut off those among them who escaped, nor should you have delivered up those among them who remained in the day of distress. Here in verses 13 and 14, 
Edom's crime against Judah went beyond being spectators who rejoiced over Israel's misfortune with their bad attitudes. Because of wrong attitudes, which came from a heart of rivalry, sinful action followed. Look what they did. Edom entered Jerusalem's gate. Verse 12 tells us, looking down upon them in arrogance on God's people in the time of their calamity. Edom looted Israel's wealth, as verse 13 tells us, killed those who tried to escape, and handed over any survivors to the attacking enemies. As the fugitives from Jerusalem left the city, the Edomites met them at some fork in the road and slew them rather than helping them escape from the invaders, as indicated in verse 14. Some Edomites even imprisoned those fleeing the carnage in Jerusalem instead of giving them refuge. They turned them over to the invading armies. We mentioned that historically, this probably took place when the Philistines and the Arabians attacked Jerusalem in the days of King Jehoram, Jehoshaphat's son, as described in 2 Kings chapter 8 and 2 Chronicles chapter 21. These verses show the third consequence of cultivating rivalry in your heart. Rivalry consequence number three. Rivalry results in sinful actions. Rivalry results in sinful actions. And of course, sin always has consequences and God punishes sins. As with all undealt with issues of the heart, it will naturally come out in sinful action. For the Edomites, their rivalry led them to these terrible sinful actions. Instead of helping their relatives during a time of great distress, they went so far as to rub salt in their wounds and help the enemy cut down the fleeing Israelites. What is the natural tendency of two children who want the same toy? They fight. I remember when my two boys were toddlers, separated only by 20 months. If younger Nathan wanted a toy of Andrew's, instead of asking nicely, which of course he couldn't do because he couldn't talk then, he would simply come over, hit Andrew, and grab the toy from his hands. Now, as adults, we may not resort to such technique of physical violence, but we do express sinful actions through such means as passive aggressiveness, passive aggressive actions where we do things or do not do things to prevent or to impede the other person from succeeding or surviving. This is sinful action, violence expressed from the heart into very subtle ways. Again, it goes to the root heart condition that somehow the other person can't be better than us. So when they are down, we need to push them down. We need to take advantage of them when they are down instead of helping them. This is the complete opposite of what Jesus teaches for us as Christians for what we are to do, which is to help others, even our enemies. Let me read from Luke chapter 6 verses 27 to 36, Jesus' own words for how instead we should respond. Jesus said, But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, and pray for those who spitefully use you. To him who strikes you on one cheek, offer the other also. And from him who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who asks of you. 
And from him who takes away your goods, do not ask them back. And just as you want men to do to you, you also do to them likewise. But if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you hope to receive back, what credit is that to you? For even sinners lend to sinners to receive as much back. Verse 35, But love your enemies, do good, and lend, hoping for nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High. For He is kind to the unthankful and evil. Therefore, be merciful, just as your Father is also merciful. Would you underline verse 36? Therefore, be merciful, just as your Father also is merciful. If rivalry results in sinful actions, then we have to deal with this heart problem in such a way as to see others not as competition or even enemies, but as people whom God dearly loves just as much as He loves us. He also sent His Son to die for others as well. And so we are to treat them just as the Father would treat them and us as well. And that should motivate us to share the gospel to even people we may not like very much. We should never not like someone so much that we would want them to perish eternally in hell. It is through this action of love that we emulate our Heavenly Father, as Luke chapter 6, verse 35 to 36 tells us, or else we compete with the wrong people and we lose our focus on whom we should be united against. Jeff Calvin writes, Powerful rivalries can be blinding, obscuring events beyond the combatant's battlefield. As you know, Coke and Pepsi were so busy pounding the daylights out of each other in competition and in rivalry that they missed an entirely new notion. And today, inconceivably, the best-selling energy drink in U.S. convenience stores isn't made by either company. It's Red Bull. General Motors, GM, and Ford obsessed over each other in rivalry until one day Toyota has stolen the bulk of their profits and regained the share as number one automaker in America. Christians today aren't making an impact in the world because we are so busy tearing each other apart in our sinful actions that we don't stand united against the darkness of this world. And the root of all of this is rivalry. Let us deal with this issue of the heart Has the rivalry in your heart resulted in sinful action on your part? Actions that impede and push others down. Examine your hearts. I close with this story. The story of two shopkeepers who were bitter rivals. Their stores were directly across the street from each other and they would spend each day keeping track of each other's business. If one got a customer... He would smile in triumph at his rival. One night, an angel appeared to one of the shopkeepers in a dream and said, I will give you anything you ask, but whatever you receive, your competitor will receive twice as much. 
Would you be rich? You can be very rich, but he will be twice as wealthy. Do you wish to live a long and healthy life? You can, but his life will be longer and healthier. So what's your desire? The man frowned, thought for a moment, and then said, Here is my request. Strike me blind in one eye, so my rival will be fully blind. Thomas Lindbergh once wrote, One sign of jealousy and rivalry is that it is easier to show sympathy and to weep with those who are weeping than it is to exhibit joy and to rejoice with those who rejoice. My friends, do you have a rivalry in your heart? Whether it is with a sibling, a family member, someone in the church, perhaps with a colleague or a fellow student, If so, make sure you deal with it immediately and ask God to work in your heart to identify it and eradicate it because it may lead to you taking the wrong side. It may result in you cultivating a wrong attitude. It may result in you perhaps taking sinful actions, all of which will have catastrophic consequences as was evident in the kingdom of Edom. If you have rivalry in your heart, ask God to forgive you. Ask God, with the help of the Holy Spirit, to eradicate these rivalries from your heart. There is really nothing to be rivalrous of. Since we are the recipient of God's grace, we, who deserve nothing, have been given everything. So what do we have to be rivalrous of? And also, we are on the same team as children of God, serving the same Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Rivalry left in check will lead us to taking the wrong side, having the wrong attitude, and often leading to sinful actions. Let us learn the lesson from the Edomites not to have rivalries in our hearts. Our Lord can help you if you're willing to let God work in your hearts. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. This passage strikes a chord in my heart. Because all too often, I sometimes exhibit rivalry with the fellow believer. Father, and how it is displayed is so subtle. But help me to be reminded that I am a recipient of your grace. I who deserve nothing, we who deserve nothing, have been given everything. And because of that, what do we have to be rivalrous of? So, Heavenly Father, I pray that all those who are listening will check their hearts that they would, with the help of the Holy Spirit, eradicate this rivalry so we, as children of God, can be united as we confront the darkness of this world. All too often, we are tearing down our own, and no wonder the enemy is winning. Help us to find victory in you. Help us to be focused, because it is in you we have victory. Bless those who have listened and listened well and are willing to apply. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.